Hi everyone, welcome back to The Lake Podcast. I'm your host, Karthik Nachipan. Information, as the saying goes, is power. When citizens have that power, it increases their clout over the state and how the state governs. Information is the currency every citizen requires to participate effectively in public life. The greater the access of information to citizens, the greater the responsiveness of the government to their needs. On the other hand, the greater restrictions or constraints on access to information, the greater citizens feel helpless, powerless to exercise their rights and responsibilities and make informed choices. It is for this very reason that makes India's Right to Information Act so important. Arguably, the Right to Information Act would be in many ways the most significant reform in public administration in India over the last generation. This is because it ostensibly secures for every Indian citizen the enforceable right to question, examine, audit, review and assess government acts and decisions, and to ensure that these are consistent with the principles of public interest. But how did this act come about? In a new book, Political scientist Himanshu Jha explores and seeks to explain how the 2005 Right to Information Act came to be in India. How can this particular institutional change, the passage of the Right to Information Act, be explained? Why did the Indian government upend the norm of secrecy, which had been historically entrenched within the Indian state, and embrace transparency? Through archival materials, internal government documents, and interviews, Ja argues that ideas around transparency emerged gradually and incrementally over decades within the Indian political establishment. And this ideational churning is responsible for the specific institutional change in the form of the RTI. It was not the social movement, spearheaded by the Mazdoor Kisan, Shakti Sangatan, which later expanded as the national campaign of people's right to information. All the political claim-making that the UPA one facilitated, that gave birth to the RTI. What mattered more were ideas, specifically an ideational churning, driven by the political opposition, government communities, and the Indian judiciary, which led to a tipping point in 2005 when the RTI was enacted, ushering a new information regime in India. Here is Himanshu Jha on his recent book, Capturing Institutional Change, the case of the Right to Information Act in India, published by Oxford University Press in 2020. Before we talk uh, deeply about the book, uh, Himanshu, I hope you can give our listeners a sense of how you got interested uh, in the issue of right to information, transparency, and governance uh, in the Indian context. 
thank you, Karthik, and it's a pleasure to be here and talking to you um, about my book. Um, you know, this has a backstory to it, Karthik. Uh, you know, prior to my graduate school, um, I was working in the developmental sector in India, and I was part of this policy think tank where we would engage with uh, issues of transparency and accountability by monitoring the institutions of governance, such as parliament, the judiciary, the executive. Um, and so this also coincided with the time when India had promulgated a plethora of rights-based legislations right around 2004, 2005. And so Right to Information Act 2005 was part of this bundle. And yet it was different because unlike the other rights-based legislations, RTI did not have any policy precursor. So, uh, you know, for instance, you had Mahatma Rural Employment Guarantee Act and the policy precursor for that was, you know, Jawahar Rozgar Yojana. And then there were other experiments like Employment Guarantee Scheme in Mar uh, Maharashtra. But right to information did, does not represent any policy continuity. If at all, it represents a policy departure. So it was, yet, it was somewhat different from the other rights-based legislations. Um, and so, you know, in fact, I remember that uh, together with UNDP, we had organized this workshop when I was with this policy think tank on the use of RTI, where we heard um, fascinating stories of citizens creatively using RTI to ask questions from the government. Um, and so there were settled narratives or explanations of this institutional change. But I had this informed hunch that there is perhaps more to it. Uh, this curiosity convinced me to go back to the academic drawing board uh, to connect the missing dots. And I was fortunate enough to get a fully funded scholarship opportunity at the National University of Singapore and was lucky to have connected with, a, with, a, with an academic mentor, uh, Rahul Mukherjee, who was sympathetic to these views. And so in many ways, this work is also a product of our ideational collaboration. So this is the backstory of, uh, of this book. And this is how it all started. So the book, uh, as you mentioned, is about the right to information uh, or the genesis and evolution of uh, India's 2005 Right to Information Act uh, or that particular in institutional change and not how it was implemented. Uh, so first, just to refresh our minds, um, what is the Right to Information Act and why is it so important to discussions around uh, governance in India and how the Indian state operates? Uh, you know, Right to Information Act uh, provides citizens a legal regime to access information from the state or public authorities. And so this law, this law is popularly, popularly known as RTI and kind of redefines state citizenship, uh, citizen linkages in the new ways, multiple ways. Uh, it covers central state and local governments and all bodies owned or controlled uh, by the state, including non-government organizations. Uh, interestingly, there's a lot of debate around it, but it also includes information relating to any private body which can be accessed by a public authority. And so um, information is also specifically defined in this law as any material in any form, including uh, you know, records, documents, memos, emails, opinions, advices, press releases, uh, you name it, it's, it's part, of this, part of this law. And this law also interestingly includes uh, you know, things like inspection of work, 
documents, records. Uh, you can also take certified copies of the notes, extracts, or you know, documents uh, related to, um, say, uh, a road being built in your neighborhood. The kind of material which is being used to build that road, you can take a certified copies of the samples or the materials. Um, obtaining information in electronic mode is also part of this uh, part of this act. Um, and there are the 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 act is very specific in terms of the items of information which are exempted from right to information. So you know if it is if it is information related to sovereignty and integrity of the country, security issues, defense defense issues, scientific or economic interest of the state. Um, relation with the foreign state or these mm -hmm. these information are not to be disclosed and in fact these are the excuses that a lot of information commissioners departments and ministries use uh, in not giving out information to its citizens um, so it has kind of a downside too uh, and there are important implementation links of this act and the information commissioners or the information officers are they serve as an important link. So each department, ministry at all level, levels are supposed to have a public information officer who is deputed as a PIO or public information officer from the pool of existing officers. And so applications can be submitted in writing or electronically to these public information officers. Um, and there's also a stipulated time frame within which the information should be provided which is 30 days. And so, uh, you know, it, information, you know, can be provided within 48 hours if there is a question of life and liberty is involved uh, or 35 days if, you know, the information is not to be found. So, you know, there's a stipulated time frame, and there's also a system of appeal. Uh, you know, if you are not able to get information within the stipulated time frame, you can actually appeal it to the higher authorities. Right, so there's a system of appeal as well. And interestingly, and this is probably uh, the most interesting part of this act, is that penalties can be imposed by information commission on the PIOs or the officers asked to assess the PIOs. So there are important dimensions such as the provision for, you know, proactive disclosure, suomoto disclosure of information by the public authorities. Um, and you know, right to information interestingly has kind of deep interlinkages with other rights-based regimes like MGNREGS or, or right to education. And so there are crossovers between these different rights because account, you know, accountability and transparency, uh, you know, a legal regime which give empower citizens to ask questions from the government uh, is relevant for most of the public policy, most of the things which happen in public policy and governance. Mm -hmm. Uh, so this is how the act actually, uh, you know, fans out. So, so the RTI has also had a massive, uh, tangible impact on people's lives in India. I'm, 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 I'm wondering if you can share with us the story of Mazlumbai, a rickshaw puller in Bihar, and his experience with RTI. And you begin the book with his story. So can you just tell us a little bit about Mazlumbai? Um, yeah, um, so Muslim's story is, 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 is interesting, Karthik. I met him in 2014 when I was doing my fieldwork in Bihar. Bihar, by the way, is the eastern state in India, which is uh, not a very well-known state for uh, its governance. 
uh, it is a poor state. Um, it, you know, it is a state which is deeply rooted in its caste-based nexus. Uh, it is a state which is known for its, uh, you know, exploitative nexus, which has taken root on the ground. There's a lot of corruption. Uh, so it's not an exemplar state in terms mm -hmm. of governance. Uh, and yet you see a lot of RTI action, which is happening on the ground. Uh, which makes Bihar a tough case. And so, you know, Muslim uh, uh, is a rickshaw puller in, uh, you know, one of the remote villages in North Bihar, which is a flood prone area, which is actually even backward than some parts of Bihar. Mm. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, I, uh, in 2006, he actually filed an RTI with the help of a lawyer uh, in the local uh, block development office. Um, you know, he was, uh, you know, he's a rickshaw puller and by the government of India definition, he's somebody below poverty line. And so he was eligible to get a housing loan uh, under a program called Indra Avas Yojana, which provides housing loan to uh, the rural poor to build houses. And he was being given a runaround for quite some time. Uh, the block development officer, of course, uh, wanted some extra payment on top of the housing loan, a cut on the housing loan. Uh, you know, not that he could not, not that he was not willing to pay, but he just could not afford it. Um, and so the local lawyer asked him to uh, file an RTI and he asked the details about the list of beneficiaries who have got a uh, housing loan under the Indra Avas Yojana uh, in the last five years in his village. Uh, even before he could get the information, the block development officer came to his house and gave him the first check uh, of his housing loan. Uh, you know, he did not follow up on that right to information application because the, his purpose was solved, you know, uh, his purpose for uh, filing the RTI was to get the housing loan passed in the first, first place. So, um, you know, later on, he got an award uh, showcasing how citizens have creatively used right to information. But interestingly, he said that, you know, I, you know, neither my awards, uh, you know, nor my you know, housing loan is something which I appreciate. But what I appreciated was that overnight after my RTI use, I became from Muslim, I became Muslim Bhai, which is a more respectable way of calling uh, somebody a brother in uh, the Indian rural landscape. And so this is a case which showcases how RTI is not only kind of given entitlement to its citizens, but it has also empowered people like Muslim uh, at the local level, where he has found this new respect uh, in his village. Um, so that's an interesting story. And before RTI, in the pre-RTI period, Muslim could not have done this. It was completely unimaginable. So, I mean, as you mentioned, before the RTI, uh, the details and processes of governance in India were shrouded in secrecy. And there were several laws that institutionalized the secrecy. It was the Official Secrets Act in 1923, uh, the Civil Services Conduct Rules in 1964, or the Indian Evidence Act in 1872. Uh, so the, the institution of secrecy you know, was locked in within the Indian state at all systemic levels. So historically, how did this norm of secrecy grit get ingrained within uh, first the colonial and then the, the Indian state after 1947? Um, 
you know, I would start by defining what is an institution. So, you know, institutions have been variously defined as informal, formal rules of the game. And this is the definition that I use in my book. But institutions also have this bad ha habit of sticking on the historical landscape. They tend to persist. And, you know, institutional persistence creates a kind of a self-enforcing loop where uh, previous institutional choices results in the formation of elaborate social and political networks that make the adoption of alternatives highly cost-ineffective. And so when institutions change, it also poses a puzzle for scholars like us who try to explain the process of institutional change. You know, the saga of information regime in India is a similar story of persistence and change. Uh, you know, norm of secrecy persistent in India since independence. And as you mentioned, it was path dependent on laws such as the Official Secrets Act of 1923, uh, Civil Services Conduct Rules of 1964, Sections 1, 2, 3 of the Indian Evidence Act, and manual and office procedures of the government of India. And what this legal regime did was that it weakened the citizens' right to know. Uh, a little background on OSA is, is in order to explain how this took root. You know, OSA 1923, the Official Secrets Act 1923, was path dependent on, you know, the laws taking shape in Britain uh, and the norm of secrecy that emanated from the from the need that you know you need to safeguard interests, especially during the two, two world wars. And so, post independence, the first amendment to the OSA was made in 1951, which was merely to remove all references of Great Britain and operationalize the act as it existed. So the act was just adopted as it is. And so OSA was amended again in 1967 to an even stronger version after the Indochina war and Indo-Pak war uh, by adding espionage and sharing of information to outsiders as a legal offense. So for instance, clause C of section 3.1 was amended to classify all documents as secret or top secret. So all official uh, documents were secret according to OSA. And executive powers not to share information were amended to be stronger and further intensified under section five. And with a stronger version of OSA, governance could now be carried out in complete secrecy. Uh, secrecy was further reinforced through civil services conduct rule 64, which prohibited the bureaucracy from sharing official information without proper authorization. So as a result, what this, what this created is to have this locked in norm of secrecy, which was, uh, which took firm root within the state apparatus. And the logic that emerged within the state was that official information is the key to protect uh, state interests and uphold national security. Bureaucracy also viewed information as a source of power. Giving out information from within the state was in a sense, giving away the power that bureaucracy held or still holds hidden in those files. And in fact, till, you know, as late as 1994, during the heyday of when economic reforms were unfolded, there was a considerable pushback from the state to intensify and even uh, deepen the secrecy further within the, within the state. So in 1994, the government in power amended the manual of department security instructions issued in 66 to instruct government departments to classify or declassify documents from top secret to confidential. You know, one would believe that the structural economic reforms initiated in 1991 would make the state more accepting towards the idea of openness, but that was not the case. 
So I mean, given this history and legacy of secrecy, why did the Indian state then decide to initiate institutional change uh, within a legal regime that had persisted since the colonial period and even strengthened, as you argue, uh, in 1967 after the Indochina War and the Indo-Pakistan War in 1965? Uh, why would the state then change the legal framework here, which then could be used to uh, highlight and expose uh, how institutions governed? You know, there are a few existing explanations, uh, Karthik. So, you know, the first dominant, the most dominant narrative is about the role of people's movement or the social movement, where it is uh, argued that, you know, the social movement, uh, you know, the demand from ground below uh, actually put pressure on the state uh, to promulgate something like right to information. Or the second argument is about the role of elite networks, that this was actually a dense interpersonal elite network. Or the third argument is that it was a broad-based civil society coalition or alliances with its connections to the political executive. Or there's a fourth narrative as well that you know this was a political opportunity under the UPA, which was a more sympathetic regime that right to information uh, was actually enacted. Um, you know, and so this was this was a narrative which is which was like a political claim making. Um, and interestingly, this, these dominant narratives and explanations were accepted you know, unquestionably by the academia, the political parties, and also surprisingly, all the government agencies. Uh, you know, in this book, I have kind of looked at the archival materials, uh, internal government documents, uh, you know, um, have taken uh, in-depth interviews, uh, with various actors. And, you know, I present an alternative explanations to problematize these dominant narratives. And uh, I, you know, I argue that right to information was a result of an incremental, slow moving process of ideas emerging endogenously from within the state right since independence. And this process is, I explain this process through something which I call a layered tipping point model of institutional change. Uh, signaling a shift from the norm of secrecy uh, to a substantial legal commitment towards the norm of openness. Uh, so, yeah. So, so I mean, you 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 argue and say that we need to historically contextualize the RTI to understand the factors that you know, led to its rise and evolution uh, by, as you said, ma mapping a set of ideas that have existed in India since uh, independence. Uh, and, and you very neatly kind of show this, this mapping of ideas, which you refer to as uh, an ideational churning between uh, parties and government and those that were in opposition and, and, and some of the leading um, figures in, in, in both groups. So just take us through this process. How do ideas get layered and how do they, I guess, in a way, sediment themselves within institutions over time? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I explain this norm shift uh, through a process of something which I call a layered tipping point. And, you know, what, what is a tipping point? It has got three distinct characteristics. You know, the first, the changes are evolutionary, evolutionary, gradual, and largely uh, endogenous. Second, by carefully tracing the institutional path, one should be able to delineate small interlinked changes accumulating over time. And third, changes continue to evolve over time until they reach a certain threshold. 
So it's very hard to pinpoint the exact time when the system tips over. Uh, but if a set of ideas uh, uh, have, if a set of ideas reach a certain threshold, the system is said to have tipped over. And so this movement of ideas, uh, this tipping point happened in a layered process. You know, in layering, a new norm emerges on the edges of existing institutional structure and eventually veers it out, veers the old nested norm. You know, Kathleen Thelen uses layering to show, uh, you know, change in large metal working firms in Germany from an anti-labor system to a liberal, uh, you know, more friendly labor system. Similarly, the process of layering has been deployed by Rahul Mukherjee to explain institutional change in the Indian telecommunication sector from government monopoly to, to, to a more regulated private enterprise. You know, in this case, uh, in the case of RTI, this was also a two-layered process. You know, what happened in the first layer was that ideas of openness emerged in a very rudimentary form uh, at the periphery. And at the same time, the norm of secrecy was being in institutionalized. So there was a churning of ideas uh, between the nested norm of secrecy and the, and the nascent norm of openness, which was emerging on the policy periphery. And so in, the, in, this, in this first layer, the idea of openness was primarily part of opposition politics. So for example, in 1965, the speaker of lower house, Hukum Singh, lower house is also known as a Lok Sabha, gave a ruling in uh, Lok Sabha that members can quote freely from the confidential government documents in the parliament. And the ruling was triggered by a demand from a member of parliament whose name was P.K. Dio of Satanrita Party to quote excerpts of reports of the Central Bureau of Investigation and union subcommittee that were rather damaging to the two former chief ministers of the state of Odisha, Biren Mitra and Biju Patnaya. Uh, oddly, when a similar issue was raised by the opposition in the upper house, it was struck down by the chairman. Uh, exclusive privilege of access to information to the ruling party was the root cause of this demand. These demands emanated from the floor of the parliament. And these, you know, these linkages are completely missing from the dominant narratives. Uh, the second source were the reports of the government committees. So for example, the norm of secrecy was challenged in the press law inquiry committee published in 1948, or the Appleby report of the Indian administration in 53, and the whole trend continued through, you know, throughout 60s, 70s. So for instance, uh, you know, the Santanam committee report of 1962 recommended that to the maximum extent possible, transaction of government business should be open. Uh, you know, at the same time, nascent ideas on openness were expressed by the judiciary right after the independence. So in number of cases, uh, dealing with Article 19 1A of the Indian Constitution, which grants the fundamental right to freedom of expression and speech to the, to the Indian citizens. Uh, judiciary established clear linkage between the need for dissemination of information uh, in the democracy and the fundamental right of expression and speech. And judiciary later on sharpened its stance, you know, uh, right before around emergency uh, and in the early 80s, uh, by interpreting Article 19 1A as inherently containing right to know. So the famous Raj Narayan case or S.P. Gupta case of 1982, judiciary clearly interpreted Article 19 1A as inherently containing right to know. Uh, you know, so, but, you know, from the first layer, when the ideas were still on the periphery, in the second layer, uh, starting from the 1989, when the National Front government came to power, 
you know, the churning from the first layer translated into uh, concrete political and policy steps. And rudimentary ideas of openness actually matured and were consolidated within the state thinking uh, reached, and you know, they finally reached a tipping point in 2005. And I argue and show through different processes that the weight and momentum of ideas, you know, incrementally, uh, you know, rendered the issue of openness and access to official information as uh, what you call a, uh, you know, sine qua non uh, within the state. So as distinct from the first layer where, you know, opposition politics played a consequential role, uh, in this stage, the process, uh, you know, uh, the ideas became part of the mainstream politics. So it became both the part of not only political commitment, but also uh, kind of uh, policy processes. Uh, you know, the pro you know, I kind of liken it with something called institutional cropping, mm -hmm. uh, where the seeds of norm of openness were in the process of being planted on the policy periphery and slowly transitioned from the periphery to the policy center stage. And I would like to quote Culpepper here, and this kind of aptly summarizes the whole process. And I quote, observing how ideas become shared is much like watching grass grow. Nothing seems to be happening in the short term, but one day a former patch of mud is suddenly green. So you know, the book's emphasis on ideas, you're also pushing back against um, interest-based arguments, right? which claim that um, societal interests or various social pressures um, play a critical role in, in shaping institutional policy preferences. Uh, and, and so there what's import, important is uh, how these demands are, are articulated and how they flow up uh, eventually uh, informing the uh, approach of institutions and then the outcomes, right? Uh, and with respect to the RPI, RTI, sorry, uh, what, you, what you have here heard, heard a lot about, and, and you mentioned this, is the, is the role and impact of social movements. Um, so what role did these social movements around transparency play here? And how would you characterize their actions and activism relative to that of the key institutions? Yeah, uh, Kartik, I do, I do acknowledge the significance of social networks that struggled for the rights-based uh, regime, especially right to information. Uh, but I also argue that had the Indian state not evolved in ideational terms over the previous decades, which I show in the first two layers, the state would have dealt with these the same social network very differently. Uh, that is one. But to understand the process of institutional change, uh, I think it is important to problematize the singular linear narrative that you know so societal interests are instrumental in influencing the state's policy thinking and affecting institutional change. Uh, so I examine the state society interactions and I propose a nuanced understanding of the process. I show uh, that progressive actors from both the state and society forged linkages, uh, complemented and constituted each other. Uh, and you know, finally, what these actors were able to do, they, they were able to remove the locked in political and policy uncertainty uh, uh, you know, in the final stages of institutional change around 2000s. Uh, you know, and secondly, I established the significance of ideational linkages in the formation of what I call an epistemic network, which worked from both within and outside the state realm. And this kind of intensified, exasperated the processes 
or policy movement around right to information uh, within the state. Uh, you know, I argue that actors from both the state and society were bound by progressive ideas on openness, transparency, and access to information came together to pursue a common goal. So this was not a case where, uh, you know, it was a dense interpersonal elite network. Uh, you know, the glue of this network was actually ideational. Uh, and interestingly, I've traced this network. Each node of this epistemic network had their own set of epistemic characteristics, uh, you know, which played uh, a consequential role in the final stages of institutional change, uh, especially around 2004, 2005. Uh, you know, for instance, the actors in this network were from varied backgrounds with considerable array of people, not only from grassroots, but consisted of government officials, lawyers, jurists, academicians, uh, former bureaucrats, even some legislators. So each node of this network had their own specific epistemic characteristics. And I will just give you some examples. Uh, you know, take for instance, two prominent journalists who were part of this network. Ajit Bhattacharji was closely involved with JP movement and was editor of Every Man's Weekly, an English publication promoting the views of Jayaprakash Narayan. Prabhash Joshi was founding editor of a major Hindi daily called Jansatta. As a journalist, Joshi was also involved in the Janta Party movement as he was editor of the newspaper called Prajaniti, brought out by, the, brought out by uh, this, this establishment in support of the Jayaprakash movement. You know, now surely the ideas of openness expressed by these social actors can be traced back to the Janta Party period where similar ideas were expressed by the Janta Party government. You know, in fact, Janta Party government was the first ruling party in 77, which had expressed its commitment to openness. And then Home Minister Charan Singh had constituted a committee to examine uh, the possibility of amending OSA and have something uh, like uh, an access to information legislation in place, right? So there were ideational linkages. Uh, another example, uh, another academic who was part of this network was Shekhar Singh, you know, who was an academic as well as the advisor to the planning commission during VP Singh government. And he was uniquely placed with linkages at three levels, you know, he, at the grassroots, academic, and the state. Or Aruna Roy, who was part of, uh, you know, the bureaucracy. She resigned from the Indian bureaucracy and became part of this social movement. And she was uniquely, uh, you know, uniquely placed uh, where she came from a social movement, but also had linkages with uh, bureaucracy and the political executive, right? So the linkages were more ideational than interpersonal. Uh, and the diverse nature of issues and socioeconomic and political linkages, you know, provided the basic basis and context of the of this epistemic network, right? With informal formal linkages uh, with the state, which enabled them to kind of work from both within and outside the state. And so, you know, I kind of nuance this social movement narrative to include this aspect of epistemic network uh, in the whole narrative. But the the other uh, point which um, which you also talk about in the book, but you and you're pushing back against is this notion of a critical juncture, right? The fact that generally it's understood in the literature that uh, you know ideas are are bubbling under the surface for a long time until they reach a certain specific juncture or a crisis happens when uh, things generally push everything over the ledge and and ideas that had been around for a long time result in certain concrete actions or plans. 
Uh, you argue otherwise. You say, you're, you're actually say, claiming that instead of a critical juncture, we should actually think of it more as a tipping point. Right? Uh, why? Uh, you know, critical juncture is something which is, um, uh, which happens when a sudden window of opportunity opens up, uh, where an exogenous shock actually is so, uh, uh, so impacting, you know, the, the impact of exogenous shock is so much that it uh, alters the path of the persisting institution. So it is, uh, you know, there are exogenous factors at play. Uh, number two, it is sudden. Uh, so it is like, uh, you know, a meteor hitting the earth and dinosaurs going extinct, right? Uh, tipping point, on the other hand, is more of a slow-moving incremental process where ideas play a prominent role. Uh, and in this case of institutional change, there was no sudden window of opportunity which opened up. If at all, there was, uh, you know, a marginal role played by exogenous factors. So it was not as if IMF and World Bank had directed the Indian state to do it. It was a long drawn process of ideas emerging endogenously right since independence, uh, uh, which I have actually traced in the, uh, in the two layers that I uh, uh, elaborate in the book. Uh, and so this is uh, the distinction that I wanted to make uh, in, you know, uh, in this book between critical junctures and tipping point. Uh, one is a more slow moving process an incremental process uh, the second is more of a, uh, a fast moving, uh, you know, sudden change. Uh, but both of them are actually talking about institutional persistence and change. Uh, but the views are different. So, so let's talk about the global scene now. Uh, in one of the chapters in the book, you also consider how global norms of transparency uh, impacted RTI debates in India. Uh, and you, you argue that global norm diffusion did not force domestic policies to change. Uh, instead, what they did was they deepened and complemented the existing endogenous processes that you, that you track. So how, how did these global currents find traction in India? Um, yes, um, you know, of course, that's another dimension that has been kind of ignored or parsimoniously treated in the dominant narrative or the mainstream narrative. You know, dominant narrative around social movement tends to emphasize on the role of marginal or that the drive was fueled from the grassroots up uh, and was you know largely uh, homegrown uh, now between 1990 and 2010 76 countries enacted legislations on access to information uh, you know there's a global proliferation of law uh, which is you know which also converges with the good governance agenda of the international monetary fund and world bank uh, you know, the international financial institutions. And as we all know, that transparent and accountable government was part of these conditionalities with came with the structural adjustment programs initiated by the IFIs in 1990s. You know, the puzzle for me was that how do we locate Indian RTI within this trend? Uh, and, you know, to expand on this puzzle, I offer two arguments to explain kind of a missing link. Uh, and try to untangle the global local linkages. You know, first, I argue that, uh, you know, the global norms informed and influenced the ongoing discourse at the national level, uh, along with considerable demonstrative influence in what I term as norm demonstration. Uh, secondly, I draw upon Acharya's ar argument of norm localization, and I postulate that global norms were adapted not as 
you know, not as passive learners, but actively drawn upon and adapted at the national level in accordance with the ongoing policy processes and domestic discourse. So for example, uh, the initiatives adopted around the freedom of information legislations in the developing countries were cited to argue for similar legislations in India. Uh, you know, and uh, there was a committee which was constituted during the United Front government, popularly known as uh, the Shori Committee uh, in 1997. And so this committee viewed transparency and access to information as a prerequisite for democracy, citing, uh, the sim citing similar law norms in other uh, uh, developing countries. Um, you know, similar practices in other countries were drawn upon while setting the context for FOI legislation uh, in India. So as openness and accessibility of people to people to information about the government's functioning is a vital component of democracy. Uh, you know, so the, so the report of the committee added that it is not only the developed countries that have enacted freedom of information legislation, uh, similar trends have appeared in the developing countries as well. Uh, so, you know, the global norms were actively uh, drawn upon and the international best practices contributed to the domestic level by playing a crucial role of providing a template for legal specifications. Uh, you know, specific clauses from the FOI laws of other countries were cited and drawn upon in a clause-wise discussion of the proposed FOI bill. So, for example, in 1997, again in the Shori Committee, uh, it you know, the members unanimously agreed that inter and interdepartmental noting should be excluded from the disclosure, uh, you know, while citing the case of United States. Uh, similarly, on the question of whether the draft FOI bill should have an overriding clause as against the other laws, the committee examined the FOI laws of the US, Canada, and Australia, which contain such a clause. And as we all know, section 22 of Right to Information uh, Act states that in conflict of any other law, it is the right to information which holds supreme. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the global best practices actually uh, 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 contributed to this, to this particular clause. But interestingly, we find the convergence of global norm demonstration on the domestic discourse in the two layers, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so in the first phase, consistent with the endogenous ideas on openness, the global norms remained on the fringes as well as it happened in the first layer. But in the second phase, as the endogenous processes intensified within the state and became part of the mainstream politics, the demonstrative and operative value of the emerging global norms and best practices on the ongoing discourse intensified as well. So let's connect the RTI with um, ongoing issues in India now. Uh, but before I do that, I wanna just, you know, clearly state that your book does not cover the implementation of the RTI, uh, but only focuses on the, the rise and the evolution. But I'm sure you have a lot to say about uh, what's happened with the RTI since 2005. Uh, so I, I recently read an op-ed in, an, in the print, which mentioned that, uh, and I quote here, the RTI has gone from the, the Indian citizen's most powerful tool to an act on life support, end quote. Uh, and, and you also you know, uh, mentioned in the book that the, that the, that the Indian state has on uh, numerous occasions attempted to dilute the legal provisions of the RTI, uh, ostensibly to weaken the law, uh, with the most recent being the RTI Act Amendment Bill of 2019. Um, and here it appears that the 
Indian judiciary as well is not too keen to uphold the RTI uh, and, uh, and is uh, bolstering the government's efforts to undermine the act. Um, are we returning to a culture, uh, if not a norm of secrecy uh, that's led by the example the current government is setting? Um, I have got yes and no. I've got a different take on this, uh, Karthik. Uh, you know, uh, there is little doubt that right to information has opened up a new space of accountability between state and citizens. Uh, you know, if we imagine RTI as a continuum, one end of the continuum is represented by the supply side, who are the information givers, and another end is, uh, is represented by what we call the information seekers, the demand side of RTI. And the relationship between the two have been from the beginning very tumultuous. It's not a smooth relationship. So it's the 2019 amendment is not something new. Uh, you know, there have been attempts to weaken the law. You know, after the enactment of RTI, all governments across parties have attempted to dilute the law. You know, political parties have constantly resisted coming under the ambit of RTI. And there have been a number of aborted attempts to amend the RTI Act. First in 2006, second in 2009, and third in 2012, mainly regarding the disclosure of file notings of the bureaucrats. And in 2013, an amendment to the RTI was proposed to grant immunity to the political parties. But perhaps one of the most powerful and equally contested dilutions to the RTI came 14 years after, in 2019, right? Which entails two changes. First on tenure and emoluments of the information commissioners. Uh, you know, the, uh, the fixed five-year tenure of the information commissioners will now be prescribed by the central government. Second, salaries, allowances, and other related benefits who will be stipulated, will be stipulated by the central government. So principal opposition to these amendments is that it will take away the autonomy of the information commissioners and put them into greater control of the state. So, you know, in, in a sense, uh, the regulator is being weakened, right? And this will impact the adjuratory role of the information commission, commissioners who are supposed to act as independent and neutral regulators of transparency and information regime. Uh, you know, RTI amendment bill was neither referred to the parliamentary standing committee, which is a norm, nor put it in the public domain for wider public cons uh, consultation. Uh, what will be the impact of these amendments? So ever since the inception of the RTI, it was often the norm that information commissioners at both the central and state level were former bureaucrats. There was always a likelihood that the commissioners would be sympathetic to their own genus and will often shield the executive. And this is evident in the minuscule, you know, very minuscule level of penalty imposed on the airing officials. Indeed, citizens and activists constantly oppose the capture of information regime and bureaucrats. And clearly, even prior to 2019 amendments, the information regime was susceptible to greater control from the state, uh, since the commissioners were formerly part of the state. Uh, but despite this resistance from the state, RTI has been extensively used across the country. You know, according to a modest estimate, 32 million RTI applications were filed uh, between 2006 and 18. Uh, and this figure does not include uh, the RTI applications at the subnational level. Uh, in 2018-19 alone, central information authorities received around 1.37 million applications. You know, my own study of Bihar, which, has, which is published as a special article in EPW, 
shows that against all odds, and Bihar is a tough case, RTI has, uh, you know, uh, as an institution has substantially progressed. Uh, you know, let us talk about the state of transparency in the context of pandemic. Uh, you know, this pandemic, which is playing, you know, havoc on the lives of millions of people in India is perhaps the biggest public interest issue in the country. And I mean, if this is a health emergency, uh, you know, if the health emergency like this is not a public interest issue, what is? And there is a massive attempt by the government to stonewall the information seekers on range of pandemic related issues, such as vaccines, uh, you know, information around the constitution of task force, national task force, uh, oxygen supply, data on the COVID morbidities. And at the same time, RTI has been instrumental in revealing some important information, which point towards a colossal mismanagement. You know, in fact, the art, recently I read an RTI-based story of the BBC, which unearthed, un, you know, which revealed that ventilators were procured using PM Care's money, but they lie unused in the hospitals or that PM did not consult anybody before imposing a lockdown. Uh, if there is an attempt to uphold secrecy from the state, there is also a massive, massive pushback from the citizens. RTI, if not anything else, is what enables citizens to seek accountability from the state. You know, imagine there was a situation if there was no RTI, even mm. the little information that we get around certain or little power that we have to ask questions from the government would not have existed uh, in case RTI was not there. And so this is my take, which is that the legal regime or information regime is definitely not a full glass, it's a glass half full. Uh, and there, there are, you know, push, there are pushbacks, uh, there are pulls and pressures, uh, but the kind of churning that I have traced in the book uh, on the evolution of RTI, similar churning is actually taking place post RTI uh, enactment between the nested norm of secrecy, the culture of secrecy, and uh, probably an emerging norm of openness on the ground. Interestingly, you do argue in, in the book that some of these recent changes uh, cannot reverse the institutional change that you have tracked, right? So. There, 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 there's no way that we're going to go back to a particular regime, information regime in India. Um, what makes you so confident? Um, you know, what RTI does is that, uh, you know, it kind of changes the culture of scrutiny mm. in the country. You know, so unless a state comes and countermands the right of secrecy, uh, the, the right to information, under it kind of withdraws the right to information, then it's a different story, right? Uh, but if, you know, so far they have only been able to dilute and blunt the law, they have not been able to countermand the law. And from the, from, from, from the trends uh, and the amount of RTI use, the amount of RTI action which is taking place on the ground, you know, I'm still uh, hopeful and optimistic that uh, the power of asking questions, uh, which has been, which has been uh, uh, possible with the promulgation of RTI uh, is something which will continue to evolve over time. Uh, and the fact that RTI is not only used at the central level, but also at the sub-national levels, at the district, villages, blocks, shows that uh, you know, RTI uh, has been a great tool of seeking accountability from the state and Karthik, uh, India is probably the only country where, uh, you know, RTI activists have been threatened, killed, uh, or even, uh, you know, booked under false cases under different uh, 
you know, Indian penal courts. Um, and so, you know, this is a testimony of how powerful the RTI Act has been in challenging the exploitative nexus, which has taken root on the ground. And there's a pushback from both ends, both ends of the continuum, continuum that I was talking about. The, the other question that, that I had in mind here um, related to contemporary issues was the relevance of the RTI uh, in an era governed by technology, right? So mm -hmm. India, as, as you know, has been in the throes of a technological transformation, which can be measured in terms of uh, rising mobile use, internet penetration, uh, the, the emergence of public digital infrastructures that connect citizens, uh, and the copious daily use of data uh, in basically everything that, uh, that citizens do. Uh, so, I, so some of my work now has been on, on data protection. Uh, so both the international and domestic aspects and, and how uh, India wants to regulate uh, the use and collection of personal data. Uh, so, so and some of the conversations I've had with folks in India uh, that are working on this issue on data and, and how robust the laws uh, governing data protection should be uh, and, and, and how the, the state and whether the state should protect the privacy um, of individuals. And so these, and so what some of these, you know, folks who are really pushing for really strong data protection laws have been telling me is that the, the, some criticism and pushback that they've received on this issue for more privacy, you know, has been from RTI activists uh, who are actually not very enthusiastic about a regime that's centered on, on privacy, right? So I, so I have two questions here. So what does the RTI mean uh, in a landscape, uh, both social and political, where information and transparency is abundant? Um, and second, uh, what should give when the state, the Indian state is trying to uphold both privacy, since now we have a constitutional right to privacy and transparency? Uh, is there a fundamental trade-off here? Uh, that's a very vexing issue, Karthik. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's an issue which is kind of entangled uh, at many levels and multiple levels. You know, first technology, you know, RTI, uh, you know, at, as, as the regime has evolved, you know, there have been experiments with technology and RTI. So for instance, in 2009 in Bihar, uh, the state of Bihar where I did my field work, uh, the political regime at that time uh, initiated something called Jankari, which in English is translated as information, uh, which, is, which was an ICT-enabled call center where people from anywhere in Bihar could actually place a call to that call center and file an RTI application or file a request for information. And the operator at the other end would just uh, type the question in the relevant form and forward it to the relevant department. Uh, and so technology was probably used for the first time by the, by the Jankari. And recently Rajasthan, the state of Rajasthan has something called, uh, is, you know, Jan Suchna portal, or the public information portal, where, uh, you know, the information about uh, the developmental programs, uh, the, the entitlements of the citizens, all this information is actually put on this information portal. Uh, you know, the issue is that most of the information which people sought uh, through RTI in the initial years, 
uh, and even now uh, should be and can be disclosed by the state Suomoto proactively on the website. Uh, and so there would be kind of less load on the RTI regime. Uh, and this is true of even, you know, the, in the COVID days where, you know, simple information like the number of hospital beds available, uh, you know, uh, uh, where to go, uh, you know, simple information, uh, which citizens should get anyhow from the state should be just put proactively suomoto disclosed by the state and RTI should not be invoked in that case, right? So, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a kind of a trade-off and technology has been used in RTI. Now, uh, RTI, as far as law is concerned, RTI has a very clear st stand on the issue of uh, privacy. So there's section 81J, which says that, uh, you know, there shall be no obligation to give any citizen information which relates to personal information unless the disclosure is related to the larger public interest or which would cause unwarranted invasion of the privacy of the individual. So unless it is of larger public interest, uh, this information should not be uh, divulged. And so unless the public information officer or the, or the central public information officers are satisfied that the larger public interest justifies the disclosure of such information, that information uh, should not be disclosed. But there's also a principle that any information which cannot be denied to the parliament should also not be denied to any person, right? So there's a section, relevant section in RTI, which, is, uh, which, is, which makes the stand very clear. However, as any other law, uh, the RTI is also open to interpretations. Right, different interpret, and this, this, the third party information has been invoked many times to actually refuse information, even though the information is related to public interest. And so people have actually approached the courts. Uh, you know, for instance, there was this uh, famous uh, case where the personal information was sought on a particular bureaucrat. Uh, the case was Girish Ramchandra Deshpande versus the Central Information Commissioner. Uh, and so it's a, it's a vexing issue. And I think uh, the solution is, is straightforward in the sense that, uh, you know, if it is defined better, if there are statutory laws or laws which are accompanying right to information, uh, if it is defined better, if there is a better clarity, uh, uh, you know, there, this conflicting issue would not, not emerge, this conflicting issue between the right to privacy and right to information. In fact, uh, you know, uh, Manmohan Singh, the former prime minister said that, that, you know, there needs to be a consensus between the two rights. Both, both the rights are very important and there has to be a clear boundary line between the two. And I somewhat agree with that statement where, uh, you know, there's a lot of confusion around, around both these, these rights. And, um, and unfortunately it's a conflicting issue. issue. It's a vexing problem. Uh one of the reasons I found your book and, and the work so fascinating was because it focuses on institutional change and that too over the long term. Right? Um, I, I think we don't seem to appreciate enough how uh, specific institutional legacies uh, and path dependence uh, affects policies and different uh, outcomes. Um, and also explanations that center the state with, with reference to societal pressures. 
so state-society relations. So scholars have generally used you know, various factors to explain political outcomes in India, like elite agency, caste, and class-based explanations, uh, social movements, um, uh, electoral incentives. Uh, but, but your kind of state-society angle and the institutional focus uh, under his historical institutions really, I think, provides us a tool to um, ask and answer a lot of questions. So how, how do you see this trend moving and what kind of questions and issues uh, does a historical institutionalism lens lend itself toward in the Indian context? Uh, you know, the current uh, scholarship does pro on Indian politics does provide significant direction, but you know, where it is deficient is that it is not able to explain, uh, uh, you know, uh, how and why policy paradigms uh, persist and how do they change, right? Or the broader question, which is relevant for this line of inquiry is, uh, how do we trace policy paths? Uh, you know, can we think of a way that both explain institutional persistence and at the same time explain institutional change? Uh, you know, historical institutional lens allows us to delineate uh, and process trace uh, interrelated sequences spread across timeline to explain the causality of a specific outcome. So for a socially and politically, politically complex case and a large democracy like India, a historical institutional perspective can reveal hidden and, you know, hitherto ignored sequences uh, that may offer new insights. So instead of you know, uh, taking what Paul Pearson calls a, a snapshot view of politics, a historical approach would reveal an kind of an interconnected sequencing of ideas that can provide, uh, you know, fresh insights, like uh, a view where the politics is in motion uh, rather than, uh, you know, a snapshot view of politics. Uh, you know, as they say, you know, you can't confuse the forest for the trees. Uh, you know, so this work, in a sense, moves beyond the dominant material and interest-based narratives and brings the role of the ideas, the state, and the history back in. And I think that holds promise for the future research agenda, having a long durée view of polit both politics uh, to explain persistence and change. Uh, Himanshu, I have two final questions. Uh, the first is, what was the hardest and most satisfying part of writing the book? Um, I think the hardest part for me was to kind of define the point of departure. You know, if you're tracing an institutional path, what would be the point of departure? You know, the existing narrative actually uh, uh, defined it as something which was emerging with the social movement in the early 90s or the late 80s. But for me, the point of departure was uh, something more complicated because norm of secrecy has to emerge from, norm of openness has to emerge from something, right? And so I discovered that norm of openness has to actually emerged from this norm of secrecy. And so I redefined the point of departure to the point when the norm of secrecy was actually adopted by uh, the independent India, uh, which allowed me to uh, get relevant information which is ignored in the mainstream narrative which allowed me to include some historical evidence, uh, which, you know, which, makes, uh, which, which forms the core of so-called uh, you know, argument, uh, you know, so, uh, the core of arguments in the book. Uh, but getting the information was not, not enough. Another challenge, the hardest part was to categorize the information 
uh, collate the information in a way that it makes sense. And so that was the hardest, these were the two hardest parts. And of course, the most satisfying part was when I started seeing the patterns emerging, uh, where I could actually make some coherent arguments. Uh, I could uh, uh, establish connections between different phases. Uh, I could get some empirical material, which uh, you know other scholars have not looked at. And so those were some satisfying moments when I was actually writing it up. And finally, what are you working on now? Oh, that's a, that's a good question because hopefully somebody will hear it and decide to fund me, Karthik. <laughs> and um, so, um, you know, I'm working on actually three things. One is that, one is about the implementation of RTI. Uh, you know, moving beyond uh, just looking at the patterns of, you know, how many applications have been filed, how many have been rejected, uh, the number of penalties imposed, you know, the macro view of RTI, I want to go into the, uh, you know, go into exploring these granular, granular details about who uses RTI, mm -hmm. why do they use RTI, uh, you know, what are the circumstances under which the state shuts uh, and state opens up, uh, you know, so kind of an ethnographic account of uh, the emerging politics of, politics of accountability after RTI. Uh, the second project that I'm really interested in working, and I've already started working on it, is about the state capacity. Uh, is, you know, there's a lot of body of literature which looks at uh, the pathologies of weak state. You know, it kind of engages with these hard categorizations of weak and hard state. You know, I want to kind of move beyond these hard categorizations and look at uh, cases where even a weak state develops pocket of state, pockets of state capacity and kind of isolate conditions under which a weak state develops state capacity. Uh, and, and so this body, of, uh, this body of work is already taking some kind of a shape. Uh, and I do want to bring back the role of state and ideas in this, body, in this body of work as well. And so it's kind of a continuation from my earlier work on institutional change. And I'm also working on a, on a book manuscript, which is just commissioned with uh, the Palgrave Macmillan London uh, in their pivot series, where I'm trying to understand the historical and contemporary, contemporary uh, public policy terrains in India. Uh, and the book is, you know, tentatively titled Public Policy and Governance in India, uh, Persistence and Change. Uh, and so these are the three things that I'm working on at the moment. Uh, and hopefully I should be able to, hope, hopefully they should be able to see, a light, see the light of the day despite the pandemic, Karthik. Manchu, congratulations on the book and thank you again. Thank you, Karthik. Pleasure to be here. And that was Himanshu Jha, the author of Capturing Institutional Change, the case of the Right to Information Act in India. I'm Karthik Nachipan, and you've been listening to The Lake Podcast. Mm -hmm.